0: the physician does not rule over everything, that we are an important component of the team, but in no way, shape, or form are we bred for leadership, or do we have inherent to, to ourselves the leadership skills necessary for biotech or pharma. We're just, we're just not taught that in, in medical school.
1: This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and
2: health. Storyteller, writer, drug developer. Sam Blackman is all three. A philosophy major who became a pediatric oncologist and then a creative drug developer with a penchant for imaginative solutions translational challenges. Join us today as we discuss with Sam his improvisational journey to an inspirational destination. This is Tectonics. I'm Lisa Soonan. And I'm David Shaywitz. And we're especially pleased to mention that today's episode is brought to you by a new sponsor, an innovative publicly listed health tech company that our listeners know we've especially admired for a long time, Metadata. Metadata, whose intelligent platform for life sciences closes the loop between clinical development and commercialization to power smarter treatments and healthier people. We love metadata and think that they're a great company. And if you see Glenn, also known as Captain Clinical, on Twitter, tell him we said thanks. So, Lisa? David. Um, Speaking of authors, do you have any favorite MD authors? I do. My favorite is Arthur Conan Doyle, who is a doctor. Neurologist.
1: Yes, and a fascinating guy in his own right. So... That's Uh, the one I thought of immediately when I saw your question.
2: That's a great one. I think probably one of my my dad is a neurologist, so I think that was always a favorite in our household. And Mm -hmm. now that my kids are discovering Sherlock Holmes, it's fantastic. Good stuff. Um, I think I've always liked, I thought that The New Yorker today Mm -hmm. has a staple of excellent writers, such as Atul uh, Gawande, magnificent. Sid Mukherjee. He was
1: the speaker at my daughter's college graduation, Sid Mukherjee. And I
2: heard he was very eloquent. He was very eloquent. Yeah, he's... um, He's probably even smarter than you think he is. He's just an amazing <laughs> That's guy. A scary thought. Yeah, yeah. No, he really is uh, the real deal. And I'm also a big fan of Jerry Groupman, and in particular some of the insightful and often controversial commentaries he's written with his wife and Pam Hartsband. And going back even further, one of my favorite books when I was younger is The Andromeda Strain by Michael Crichton, about whom they apparently said at Harvard, "You can graduate from med school, but only if you promise never to actually practice medicine." <laughs> In any case, today's guest, Sam Blackman, is someone who I suspect was never given such a warning, as he has a well-earned reputation as a talented and deeply empathetic clinician. Welcome to the show, Sam.
0: Oh, good morning, and thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.
2: Sam, who's your favorite
1: doctor, author?
0: Oh, boy. You know, I will tell you, I think it's probably uh, William Osler. uh, A book that I discovered uh, early in my career was Equinemitas, and... Uh, it just moved me so because I discovered it at a time when I was uh, after college, but before starting in medical school, and I was modeling uh, myself or beginning to, to, to gain the impressions that I would model my career on from uh, observing people in the emergency department at the University of Chicago. This is back in the late 1980s, early 1990s, and I was... I distinctly remember seeing a resident during a, a trauma when University of Chicago had a, a level one trauma center, um, standing in the corner amidst all of this activity, and he was uh, absolutely calm, almost placid, but observing everything and making course corrections to what the team was doing. And I didn't realize that there was a word to describe that that was equanimity, which is what Osler talked about. Um, but then it dawned on me uh, that that is the ideal quality When I once I read House of God by Samuel Shem.
2: Yeah, I and, was going to mention that and, one. And,
0: and of course, the, you know, one of the rules of the House of God is, you know, when arriving at a cardiac arrest, take your own pulse first. And, and all of those themes tied together and, 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 and were things that I've carried with me over the past 20 or 30 years.
2: Wow. Well, hopefully we'll get to some of them, because uh, that, that's a great selection. Um, so today, you're, obviously, you mentioned a creative drug development. Creative trans- drug
1: development sounds like something from Berkeley. Yeah.
2: <laughs> you probably would be good at that, too. Um, and translational researcher developing oncology drugs at Silverback Pharma in Seattle, where he's senior vice president and head of clinical development. But Sam's journey here turns out to be far less inevitable, Lisa, than you might have guessed, at least the research part. Born in Philadelphia and raised in Central Jersey. What, Dan, because I- No, no. (laughs) Central Jersey is apparently a specific place, according to Seinfeld. Is that right, Sam?
0: That's correct. There's been a huge debate whether or not New Jersey's northern or southern
2: Mm. uh, only, Mm. or
0: whether or not there's a central, and I am a uh, proponent of the central Jersey model.
2: (laughs) And Sam is the oldest son of a doctor, a pediatrician in solo practice, uh, and so being in this role for Sam in this birth order apparently radically constricted his uh, life choices. Can you amplify on that? Yeah.
0: Um, my father uh, 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 would tell me when I was growing up, he'd say, in in his booming voice, he'd say, Sammy, because cause they always called me Sammy, Sammy, you could be anything in this world that you want after you graduate from medical school.
2: <laughs> so as I understand it, as a kid, you took pretty naturally to this uh, doctoring thing to the point where even when your dad wasn't home, it, it, you were able to uh, step into his shoes?
0: Oh, gosh, yeah, we... <laughs> Uh, this was back in the uh, this was back in the late 70s early 80s before cell phones before digital pagers and my father had a beeper uh and to answer calls at home he had two landlines one was the house phone and one was the uh, office phone and the answering service would always call on the office line and uh, you know as a as a solo practitioner he was on call constantly and so we would just listen to him respond to these calls we'd only hear of course half the story But over time, you absorb enough that uh, one day my father was out and the office phone rang and I picked it up. I must have been ten or eleven, and the answering service called and asked uh, for my father who wasn't around. And I I asked, could I take a message? And they told me that you know a patient had called and their child had some symptoms: uh, barky cough, worse at night, so on and so forth. And I. Uh, uh, precociously uh, and promptly made the diagnosis of croup and began to, you know, rattle off my father's recipe for how to manage the croup in, uh, you know, in a in a uh, five or six year old child. <laughs> and my father uh, uh, came home uh, later and found out what I had done, and he goes, you know, that's practicing license without a medicine, with uh, practicing medicine without a license. But you know, to your credit, you you, you got it right. So you know, good <laughs> on you. Just don't don't do it again. But it
2: sounds like maybe he wasn't saying that. Um. When you continued, and instead of, of uh, following his recommendation initially uh, to be a premed and studying something like that, you instead decided you were going to go to University of Chicago and study philosophy. Is that right?
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, you know it's, uh, my, in, during my teenage years, I think when many people rebel, uh, you know the constraints uh, uh, put upon me by my father began to to weigh heavily, and uh, I was working. Uh, a job uh, as a high school uh, senior in a bookstore, and I uh, read voraciously through the philosophy section and you know all of the conflicts uh, between you know the firstborn son of a Jewish doctor and his Jewish son sort of came to bear uh, around the time that I was applying for college and he he said to me, he said, "You know, I don't I don't know how you're going to choose." And I said, "Well, choose between what?" And he said, "Well, choose between studying biology and chemistry." And I said, <laughs> I said, "Well, I said, Funny story. <laughs> I'm going to study philosophy and I'm going to go to the University of Chicago." And he said, "There's no way. I'm going to pay for you to go to some liberal urban commune and study that crap." <laughs> and I said, "Okay, well, that's fine. I'm I'm going anyway." And uh, and that's what I did. Uh, and who was your favorite
1: philosopher? Who did you focus on?
0: Uh, you know, I, uh, I I don't know if I had a if I had a particular particularly favorite philosopher per se. I had some areas of philosophy that I really loved, uh, and I had some professors who really got me to think differently uh, about what philosophy means. I didn't understand, I think, when I was a freshman, what epistemology meant and what phenomenology was. But as I got farther and farther along, and began to you know, think about what it is to have a brain versus what it is to have a mind and how they're two separate things and, and how you know, what we perceive as reality is, in fact, just that, a perception and what the implications are. That part of philosophy just absolutely uh, blew me away, particularly when it came to you know, questions of man versus machine and learning and decision-making and fed into a longstanding interest that I've had in uh, in artificial intelligence, so you know, I really loved phenomenology and epistemology, but I also loved ethics, which is really what got me, you know, into medicine. It it had nothing to do with the medicine itself.
2: That's what I wanted to ask you about. Yeah, yeah. Can you tell us about yeah, that? Yeah, so
0: I, you know, I was uh, I was a an adequate but not great philosophy student because I was I was more of a concrete thinker at that time and. Uh, I was also just, I was, I was poor and tired, and uh, uh, the reason I was poor was because I had to pay my way through school, and the reason that I was tired was because I was working extra jobs, and one of the jobs that I had was as a, a security guard at the, at the library, and at Regenstein Library at the University of Chicago, I would work the Saturday night to Sunday morning overnight shift, and on Sunday mornings like clockwork, there was a guy who always came in at about seven, and his name was Mark Siegler. And he had a little office in the library where he would go, presumably, to read and write. And I eventually asked people who this guy was, and they told me that he was a doctor and he was the head of the medical ethics group. And so I, you know, I started to pull some of his articles and some of his books, and I, I was just enthralled with this notion of medical ethics. And and for me, it put real concrete stories around these more abstract ethical precepts, like the concepts of distributive justice and beneficence and non malevolence and, and I asked him, you know, uh, more and more about what he did. And he allowed me actually to come and sit in on ethics rounds with, at what's now the McLean Center for Medical Ethics. And, and once I was in there and listening to these stories, you know, teams would come And they would present these case histories of patients that typically ended up in some dilemma, you know, a lot of times around end of life. And it was the combination of the drama and the emotion and the philosophy and then the medical science part. And I just said, this is this is the world that I want to dwell in. I, I thought it was the most remarkable synthesis of disciplines and I was hooked and I began to think to myself, how am I going to get into medical school?
2: So as part of that uh, transition then, as I understand, it, you took a job as a research assistant in an anesthesia lab doing clinical studies and then your inner computer geek took over. <laughs> um, what what happened? What can you tell us about that?
0: Yeah, it was uh, it was funny. After I got done with college, uh, the last job that I had in college was as a computer repairman. But I knew that if I uh, took a job job after college as a computer repairman, that's pretty much all I'd be. And so, uh, next door to that to the house where I was renting a room was Mike Royson, who was the head of anesthesia at the time, and he was sitting outside playing with his kids one day, and I basically went up to him and said, hey, I'm thinking about going to medical school and I'm somewhat good with computers, I need a job. And he got me a job as a research assistant, actually as a clinical research assistant working on a phase two clinical trial of a volatile anesthetic that's now approved under the name of Desflurane. Uh, but at the time, there was a faculty member who had gotten a contract to run a, a phase two study in outpatient anesthesia. And my job was to sit in the operating room with the case report forms, which were these triplicate carbon forms in a in a, a three ring binder. And I would sit and read the monitors, the, you know, the end tidal CO2 and heart rate and blood pressure and so on and so forth. And I would fill in the, 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 the blanks on the case report form every minute for the first five minutes and every two minutes for the next, you know, 10 minutes, so on and so forth. And after doing this for a while, I thought, well, this is really interesting, but, you know, you don't need a human to do this. And one night, uh, because I had it now a, a hospital ID card, I went to the anesthesia room, to the uh, anesthesia workroom and I started pulling monitors off the shelf and every monitor had on its back an old-fashioned 15-pin RS-232 port. And I thought, well, data's got to come out of somewhere. And I um, got the manuals for these monitors and I got a serial multiplexer and I wrote some software to to begin to input these data strings. And I realized, hey, I could build an automated machine, a program to basically capture all of this data and put it into a spreadsheet and that'll make my job easier.
1: Did it? Did it actually make your job easier? Did it make a difference?
0: You know what, interestingly enough, it didn't because I still had to transcribe everything into the books because this was before the age of, of electronic case report forms. But I was really interested in this idea of, you know, how much data should you capture versus how much data could you capture and questions of signal versus noise in physiologic data streams. And so I was on this Usenet, this is back in the day of Usenet group for anesthesia. And, uh, and somebody, uh, said, Hey, does anybody have any experience with automated anesthesia systems? And I emailed back and I said, Hey, I've built this thing turns out that that somebody was a guy named Jim Harper, who at the time was the chairman of the Department of Anesthesia at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville. And he said, because he didn't know that I was 23, he said, you know, would you uh, want to come and give a talk? You know, we could have you come and give grand rounds at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville for the Department of Anesthesia. And before I even thought what the implications were, I was like, absolutely, I would love to do that. <laughs> and so I committed to doing this, not knowing what brand rounds were, not knowing what giving a stand-up talk was. And I, I basically wrote a 45-minute talk on uh, on signal-to-noise and anesthesia and, and computerized anesthesia records and their potential uh, and some other interesting themes, yeah. And I gave, I gave Graham rounds
2: at 23. So that is, um, I mean, that's, that's incredible. And it um, led, ultimately, I think you spent several summers working down there yep. while taking grad courses, which I think you paid for in cash. And then you had decent enough grades to credibly apply to med school at that point, you said. And you got into the uh, University of Illinois of risky business fame. <laughs>
0: No Princeton for me.
2: (laughs) You ultimately elected to pursue an MD-PhD there with a PhD in pharmacology, figuring you'd ultimately be an anesthesiologist. Did your dad start
1: talking to you again?
0: So my father was was thrilled. When I got into medical school, he was over the moon. He got me a black bag, and he got me a stethoscope. (laughs) And then when I told him that I was going to do a PhD as well, he was furious, and he said to me, I remember his words, he said, He goes, I don't know what's wrong with you. Are you afraid to commit? Why are you, why are you putting off graduating from medical school? And I was like, you know, (laughs) I said, but this is important. I said, this is like another doctoral degree. Plus, um, they, Plus, it's free, <laughs> and uh, but he, he, you know, he, he, he was he was he was still so pleased that I was going in the first place.
2: Yeah. And, and 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 during that, you discovered your passion for pedi- first for pediatrics, which you did at Cincinnati Children's, and then pediatric oncology, which you did at Children's in Boston. You had also done a bunch of research and was all teed up for a promising academic career when you jumped ship for industry. Can you tell us how that happened? <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, I uh, you know I, I I tell people I I got rejected by Harvard for you know for like four times I got rejected for college and for medical school and for residency I got rejected three times and then I got in the fourth time for a fellowship and <laughs> and 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 I I trained in pediatric oncology I loved and I trained in neuro oncology which I loved and uh the nice people at the farmer had offered me a uh, a uh, a position as the fourth uh, pediatric neuro-oncologist in the group and i had gotten exactly to where i thought that i wanted to be um but it was an interesting time it was 2007 and the uh economic crisis was coming
2: yeah but you didn't know that
0: well you could sort of get the sense that i mean you know the housing bubble was starting to burst i i didn't know how bad it was going to be but we i knew something bad was happening yeah um, but more importantly, some other things were happening. One was I was discovering that while I liked the idea of being in the lab, I didn't like actually being in the lab. <laughs> uh, uh, I really liked data, but I didn't like the, 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 the slog of trying to generate it. And then uh, the other important thing that happened was uh, uh, my wife and I adopted a little girl from Kazakhstan, which is a very deliberate uh, and long process. But it's like it's one of those times where men can really be a part of it's like a pregnancy on paper, it takes about 10 months, um, but you have a lot of time to think about it because you're filling out all this paperwork. So all these things were coming together and I realized that I wanted a different model that was gonna give me access to data and allow me to think as a physician, but uh, uh, allow me to spend time with my family and I needed a different, I needed a different model. Uh, so one day a headhunter called and, and said, uh, Bristol-Myers Squibb is looking for associate medical directors uh, in early oncology research. And I, I said to this headhunter, I said, well, that's really interesting. I only understand like half of what those words mean. And I pushed and pushed and pushed to get her to describe to me what, what this meant. She finally said, listen, buddy, I'm just a recruiter. You know, if you really want to understand what drug development is like, you should go on one of these interviews and talk to people. So I went down to, uh, to BMS in Princeton. I was interviewed by Sue Galbraith, who's now head of oncology early development at AstraZeneca. Um, and she explained to me, you know, what this role meant, but I still couldn't wrap my head around what the day-to-day life for a cancer drug developer was, and I was really skeptical through the day. And, and you know, everybody said, well, you know, it's complex. there's meetings and discussions, and we work as a team. And and they went through all the all the the steps around translating preclinical research into IND-enabling studies into phase one studies. But it was so abstract. And what really made the penny drop for me, and actually. Encouraged me to give this a serious look was the last interview was with David Berman, who uh, now runs IO at uh, at uh, AstraZeneca and I had heard David Berman's name from uh, uh, Al Gilman when uh, right after Gilman won the Nobel Prize in 1994, he gave a talk in He's 1995, a super famous G right, protein or, 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 or guy. Fem- yeah, yeah, yeah. He gave a, a talk where he heralded the work of this hotshot MD PhD named David Berman, who had just cloned and characterized RGS proteins. And I remember as a, as a graduate student thinking, oh, my God, whoever that guy is, he's got it made. And 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 I, I walk in, and it's David Berman. And I said to him, I go, oh, my God, you're David Berman. And he said, well, well yeah. I said, but you are David Berman. And he said, all right, now this is a little creepy. <laughs> so now you're yeah. creeping me out, yeah. Um, but I, I said, you know, what, what are you doing here? I mean, you, you came out of a Nobel Prize winning lab. You you know, characterize a whole new class of signaling proteins, and he said, you know, he sort of shrugged and simply said, you know, I do better work here.
2: That's so interesting. And I
0: said, you know, this, this is something I should pay attention to. And and,
2: and then you promptly went to Merck.
0: <laughs> I promptly went to Merck because uh, I, I emailed Stephen Friend, who had been an alum of the Dana-Farber uh, Pediatric Oncology Program, and I asked him about going into industry, and he emailed me back not long thereafter and said, oh, no, you're going to Merck. So I uh, I went to Merck.
2: No, Stephen. I mean Stephen Friend's He's, he's a, a, a long time. Um, uh, I was gonna say what what was the, the sort
1: of um, cultural experience, of moving from that you know lab academic model to the the corporate you know commercial model of of functioning. What was the biggest shock to your system?
0: It, it's, a, it's a great question. I, you know I think in retrospect now looking back you know 10, 11 years later, probably the thing that um, I didn't realize immediately, but it dawned on me uh, over you know six months or a year was uh, the physician does not rule over everything, that we are an important component of the team, but in no way shape or form are we bred for leadership or do we have inherent to, to ourselves the leadership skills necessary for biotech or pharma. We're just, we're just not taught that in, in medical school. And I think people for a long time, and I think many physicians think that, you know, just the ability to lead a clinical team means you're a good leader in any team setting. And that's, that's not the, the case in a, in a matrix, you know, uh, corporate setting. Uh, so that was, a, that was a really important uh, thing. And the, the sooner that I let go of my ego around being a physician, the better I got, I think, at being a drug developer and a team member within a large, complex organization. So that was probably the biggest cultural shock.
1: Sounds-
2: Did your dad drop you again?
0: <laughs> you know, he was uh, he was he was distracted by the fact that we had a little girl. So uh, I mean,
2: <laughs> it seems like you must have enjoyed your transition to industry because you're still there, having gone from Merck. To GSK, to Seattle Genetics, to Juno, and for the last several years, Silverback. Yet, throughout these roles, your focus has always been on translational research, which many would describe, perhaps with a smirk, as the natural home for a philosopher. Anyway, uh, what is translational research, and what do you find so engaging about this? And can you give us some examples?
0: Yeah, so, you know, so for me, translational research, you know, it's 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 uh, it's one of those things. I think uh, was it what Justice Brennan, right? He he's like, you know, it's hard to describe, but I know it when I see it. Um, oh, Potter Stewart. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it, for me translational research is is that space in the development of a new therapeutic, and, and and now I'm really talking about therapeutic development, right? But it could apply to diagnostics as well. But it's that space in therapeutic development where uh, you're attempting to extrapolate from preclinical models uh, uh, to to line up clinical strategy. Uh, or, to begin to think about how you're actually going to design experiments in humans to develop to determine whether or not your therapeutic is, you know covering the target, is affecting the underlying biology, is likely to lead to meaningful clinical impact. and And then, of course, uh, importantly is the reciprocal component, which is taking observations from the clinic and using it to refine your hypothesis around uh, the relevance of the target that you're going after, the pharmacodynamic effects that you are engaging. Uh, that space I think is, uh, was historically undervalued and not because I think people didn't, didn't think it was, it was meaningful but maybe because we didn't necessarily have the tools. And in the past 10 or 15 years, the combination of resources devoted to doing experiments in this translational space plus the remarkable generation of high-throughput multiplex tools for the analysis of gene expression, uh, epigenetic changes, uh, immunophenotypic changes, you know, things at the single cell level uh, allow us to really now see that, you know, we can make measurements in the preclinical space and and, and, and use those to inform uh, our clinical development plans, and we can take observations from Ah, uh, single patients or groups of patients, and use those to alter our course in development.
2: So, Sam, let me ask you a provocative question here. Um, but it but it, it comes up. Um, so in, in in the actual sort of business of drug development of an organization, it always seems a sort of critical path or what you need to actually do to develop a drug, which you can say, okay, well, that's like the scripture. And then it always seems like for translational research, it's always more of a, like a Talmudic commentary on it, okay? It's sort of like here's well, you could do this. Well, what about this? Maybe here it could be better. But it always seems the way it's actually implemented to wind up being more of a commentary role, a role that's sort of, you know, versus, you know, sort of describing. And people go, oh, very, very, you know, beard polling, very interesting, very interesting. This is oh, so intriguing. But it its it doesn't feel as it's, as and while it's everyone's intention to have it organically involved, I've not seen very many examples where it truly is sort of driving the process to the degree to which so many people feel like it should. How, how do you, how do, how do you, Uh,
0: You know, I think that that may have been the case, you know, again, 10 years ago. I think that things have changed because of uh, a number of cultural changes within drug development. One is uh, a willingness on the part of clinicians to ask for and pursue and a willingness on the part of patients to provide on treatment biopsies that allow us to monitor uh, the biological effects of their tumor essentially in real time. Uh, and then the other is, I think, uh, you know, a willingness to begin to ask these questions and include uh, clinicians in drug development far earlier in the development process. So no longer, I think, do successful companies obey the model of, uh, the biologists and the chemists and the non-clinical developers working up a molecule and then tossing it over the transom, you know, six months before IND, saying, you know, here you go, knock yourself out, let us know how it works out. It's now let's have clinicians and uh, and and clin- and physician scientists involved in thinking about drug development literally from the time of target selection or target validation. So, what
1: about patients, though? I mean, what there's a there's a growing, I think. Belief that patients should be involved in this process early on to help think about, you know, what is the definition of a reasonable outcome for these drugs? What is a reasonable set of side effects to contribute real-world evidence? You know, during the process, do you feel that that is a good thing or a relevant thing?
0: I I, I always think that it's important um, because we do do our work in a in a in a a bubble uh, to. Uh, consider and obtain, where feasible, uh, the perspective of patients. And I I, I do regret, I think, you know, uh, that over the past, you know, X number of years that I've been doing this, uh, that I've not uh, had the time or resources to go and uh, really pursue or understand in depth uh, the patient perspective. Probably the best example of this has been uh, uh, in the development of CAR T-cells. You know, I worked uh, on a plan for the development of CD19-directed CAR T-cells for chronic lymphocytic leukemia. And we have held advisory boards with CLL treaters and asked for their perspective on whether or not patients, particularly elderly patients with CLL, would be willing to undergo you know, the fluid cyclophosphamide conditioning and the exposure to CAR T-cells and the potential for cytokine release syndrome and neurologic toxicity. And a lot of you know, our decisions were made off of both internal uh, assessments of risk, as well as our advisors saying, "You know, there's no way that patients would do this, or I wouldn't recommend it to patients." But we never had the patient voice in that conversation. We made the assumptions that that you know, and I think it's fair to 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 take your key opinion leaders' feedback because they're the ones on the front line seeing patients. But we didn't really include the patients. Uh, perspective on this, and I would have really been keen to assemble a group of CLL patients ranging from you know 40 or 50 years to 70 or 80 years and ask them, you know, here's the experience for CAR T cells as we know it today. Would you be willing to undergo this if it led to a chance of a durable remission where you wouldn't have to take a small molecule drug every single day? Uh, I think it would
1: make a big difference in drug discovery and, and other types of medical development, just to hear the answer because I think just the the natural biases of physicians and researchers like anybody else you know are different <clears throat> than those of the people receiving the treatment
0: yeah I, I I agree I think it's a it's a it's a good challenge for the community uh, you know going forward at, you know advocacy groups are very very keen to share this perspective and particularly when I was at Juno uh, we met a tremendous number of patient advocates from the uh, Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, and from the CLL world, uh, who had things to say, including physicians who had these diseases, who, you know, wanted to represent the perspective of patients. Those resources are out there. Uh, I would encourage, you know, uh, I certainly, you know, as I go forward in my career, and certainly would encourage colleagues to think about getting that perspective. It's, it's, you know, there's actually
1: a company, uh, WeGo Health. We interviewed Jack Barrett, the CEO, on Tectonics, who, who has a company that matches. Patients, uh, including professionals who are patients, to drug companies and others for that kind of purpose. A really interesting model.
2: Um, do you have a, a sort of uh, any views on how emerging technologies or data are going to impact translational research, as you understand it?
0: Uh, uh I well, so I, you know, I think that I, I've been. I, I I think, I believe, I hope that uh, this huge bolus of work occurring in the space of wearable technology and the high-resolution monitoring of sort of uh, non-traditional physiologic data streams like activity and sleep quality, as well as our ability to put an intuitive interface into the hands of patients to allow for real-time collection of data from validated quality of life scales or things that monitor patients um, behavior or fears or emotion, uh, their sense of well-being, their pain, uh, that that can be incorporated into, uh, you, know, you know, for me ideally, some of our early drug development to, to get a sense of, again, whether or not we're, we're modifying patients and not just, uh, you know, uh, the tumor, which is everything that I've been focused on.
2: I mean, I'd be interested in that because, like, on the one hand, like, I, I'm Aware of the idea that if you can better understand a patient's experience of, of, of an illness, then even if you have a medicine that doesn't impact overall survival, for example, but 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 allows people to sort of have a better quality of life, then you, then it would then you could really support its development. But I'm aware of specific examples, not in my current role, um, but in previous examples, I'm aware of where. Um, Drug that that was that where that was found where it was better tolerated but no improvement overall survival killed by a commercial group because they said look we just can't sell this thing so it's I, I it's still a hurdle yeah you know this
0: is it's, a, it's a, this is I'll tell you uh, this is an absolutely uh, uh, fascinating area something that 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 I I've been thinking about since I worked at Glaxo when I was at Glaxo it's it's interesting two things happened when I was at Glaxo. One was, uh, in its inimitable style, they rebranded because that, 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 that was a thing that Glaxo did, not infrequently. And uh, at the time, they rebranded with a slogan for their company that was, GlaxoSmithKline, feel better, do more, live longer, which, by the way, I loved. I thought that that was brilliant. Um, at the same time, for me personally, when I was there, I got my very first Fitbit. Uh, Now, this was 2010 or 2011, something like that, and I remember having this Fitbit and looking at it, being obsessed with the data, um, trying to understand, you know, how the data correlated to how I felt, and it got me thinking, you know, feel better, do more, live longer, and I thought, well, you know, with this Fitbit, I can tell if I'm doing more. And with other tools, I can tell potentially if I'm feeling better. And the question that, be, that, that sort of came up for me was, if I, have, if I can measure feeling better and I can measure doing more, does that really correlate with living longer? And this was during sort of the RasRafMech PI3 kinase AKT era where we had a lot of small molecule drugs where, you know, most of the time we'd see, you know, the occasional complete response and maybe a couple of partial responses, but in a phase one, we'd see mostly stable disease. And the question was, do you kill this drug or do you progress it? If it's only stable disease is the best response. And there you're just monitoring the tumor and we had no way of monitoring the patient. And, you know, one of the questions that bubbled up in my mind over those years was, what if the patient actually felt better? What if they were doing more, perhaps, you know, perhaps, you know, even with a stable tumor, they might live longer or they might live better. And would that not be a valid endpoint for the work that we're doing and a valid endpoint for this molecule? Now, there's a lot of complexity with taking that forward, right?
1: Well, certainly yeah. the model they've adopted for HIV, for HIV, right? Yes. is like you're never going to get rid of it, but at least you're going to feel good. And you're certainly going to live longer by having it treated. And, uh, that has been satisfactory for, for many, many thousands of people.
0: Right. Same thing for rheumatologic illnesses. I mean, I think that there are a lot of ways where this technology can be applied. Now, there's a huge amount of work to do in this area, and I know that a lot of companies uh, 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 are working in this space. Um, but, I, you know, I, I, I hope over the next five to ten years to see, you know, these data collection systems validated and machine learning uh, algorithms uh, adapted to be able to measure this and then be able to detect, you know, signal from noise and, and, and generate real patterns.
2: I mean, I think it's I think it's very interesting because I do think there's a lot of both lip service and authentic interest in having better patient experiences. But I think if commercial groups, to the extent that they feel like they can't successfully market, in some cases, a drug that is somewhat better tolerated but doesn't change overall survival if they don't feel like in, under particular of market circumstances they can compete it's going to be an issue um, last topic last topic sure. I want to get, get to so br- super briefly because we're kind of at the end of the hour but um, or half hour But so we focus for the most part here on your science but the first thing that got you on my radar screen was your beautiful writing you'd written an incredibly moving series of blog posts about your experience adopting your daughter as you mentioned earlier Well, unfortunately you stopped blogging a loss I rank up there with Janelle Anderson and stopping her podcast, it seems you scratched that itch by participating in a series of spoken word competitions and doing extraordinarily well. Now, my first thought is this scene from Annie Hall. It's like when I think of dying, you I know how I could like to play die. all the parts no. in this clip? <laughs> I'd like to get torn apart by wild animals, <laughs> heavy, eaten by some squirrels. Hey, listen, I mean, he was a terrific actor, and look at him, he's neat looking and he was emotional. <laughs> I don't think you like emotion too much. Seriously, though, where did this interest come from, and what are you doing with it?
0: Yeah, so it's uh, I, I appreciate I really appreciate that. You know, I stopped blogging because I ended up on the front page of the Boston Herald for something that I wrote in my blog uh, and, uh, when I was a fellow, and it and it scared the bejesus out of me, uh, and so I stopped. And and in fact, it, it, it was so notorious that when I when I when I went to Merck, they put in my employment agreement that I was not allowed to blog. So. Um, wow, uh, wow. Uh, not that anything bad had happened. It was just, uh, it was, a it was, a it was just a, uh, that's a topic for another day, but, um, I've always been a writer. Um, I've always been, um, uh, something of a storyteller. I think it's a, it's, it's just a natural outgrowth of being a physician. I mean, stories are the units of communication that we use in the clinic and then certainly as a parent stories are fundamentally important uh for educating our children and 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 that's just been a recurring theme in my life and about two and a half years or so ago my wife and another couple and i went to uh the local uh chapter of the moth uh where they have these story slams these uh these storytelling competitions and your name it's an open event your name goes in a hat and if they pick your name you have to get up and tell a five to six minute story it has to conform to the theme of the evening. And it has to be true and told without notes. And just uh, wow. the very first event that I went to, the theme was joy. And as I was sitting there, because I threw my name in the hat, thinking, oh my God, what am I going to talk about? Uh, I thought about a, a remarkably joyous moment uh, that occurred to me um, around a little a little uh, baby who I took care of, who had uh, uh a prenatal neuroblastoma. He had a a, neuro, a paraspinal neuroblastoma that was invading his his uh, spinal canal and compressing his cord, and he was born essentially paralyzed from the waist down. And it was not a high grade neuroblastoma, and so we were able to treat him successfully. Um, and after he moved into long term follow up, I didn't see him very frequently. And then one night I was holding a fundraiser for the Pan Mass Challenge that I was riding in, and his parents brought him, but he could walk and it was not pretty but he could walk and it was without a doubt i mean even to this day it 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 just i feel the surge of emotion when i i think about it one of the most joyous moments in my life and so i got up on stage and i told this story and i came in third place it was great to tell the story uh and coming in third was wonderful because if i came in first it would have been too easy and if i came in last i would have been discouraged but coming in third just made me want to compete and really try to refine this craft of taking a story that can move people and make people feel things uh, and and polishing it into this five to six minute format. And uh, I started doing this uh, with Gusto. And then over the past couple of years, i went I won about six or seven moth competitions, including the Grand Slam here in Seattle, which is sort of a they they take winners of the 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 open events and they compete ten winners against each other in a big arena. and uh,
1: boy, what did you tell that story about?
0: So that story was about, uh, the, the topic was big breaks, and I thought about, you know, what breaks I may have gotten in my life, but then I thought about, you know, what are the things in my life that are broken or have gotten broken? And I ended up telling the story about how I broke up with, with Judaism and how I broke up with God, uh, essentially, when I was 16 years old, and uh, and and that story was motivated by the fact that I had recently gone to a bar mitzvah for a friend of mine, and hadn't been in the temple in 30 years, and I went back to the temple and sat through services, and all of the all of the melodies and all of the prayers and all of the songs came flooding back to me, and I remembered all of the words, and I was reflecting on that feeling of. How deeply rooted this, these traditions were in me. And it got me thinking about the time when I basically broke up with religion, and, and I wrote a story about that.
2: Fascinating. Wow. Well, this is incredible, uh, incredible experiences. You're an incredible person, and what a fascinating show. Thank you so much for taking the time this morning. It's great to talk to you. To, uh, to share this with us. And um, uh, just good luck and keep on doing all that you're doing.
0: Oh, thank you. Thank you both very much. This was an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate it.
1: Alright, so that, that you know, that, I just read uh, Michael Lewis's book, The Undoing Project. Have you read that? No, no, it's not. you right. got to read it. It's fascinating, um, because it's about um, these two people, Kahneman yeah, yeah, and, Tursky, and Tursky. Right? yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. But the quote that it brought to my mind was, no one ever made a decision because of a number, they need a story. You know, and I thought that was so uh, appropriate to the conversation we were having. Oh, it's that. elemental
2: not only to behavioral yeah. economics, sure. but absolutely to to medicine. I mean, I mean, you know, Robert Cole's yeah, book, sure. The Call of Stories, and and I mean, it, it's absolutely sort of foundation of the whole role, the role of narrative, and it's uh, well, that you know, even
1: just the narrative about why you do or don't need patients in the process of drug development right. is you know what we tell ourselves, right, or right. what researchers tell themselves, and I think, you know, if we're going to change healthcare. We need to change our narratives to a certain extent.
2: Absolutely. And it's an incredible that someone like Sam with a degree of self-awareness is mm-hmm. sort of so intimately involved in this process. So um, great show. Um, please remember uh, to rate us on iTunes and leave a comment to help others discover the show.
1: You can follow David's writing at Forbes. You can
2: follow Lisa Sunin at VentureValkyrie.com. We're grateful to our sponsor, Metadata. Metadata, whose intelligent platform for life sciences closes the loop between clinical development and commercialization to power smarter treatments and healthier people. Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded in Tectonic Studio B in Mill Valley, California. Be good people, or
1: at least be happy.
0: and look at him. He's neat looking and he was emotional. You, hey, I don't think you like emotion too much.
2: Touch my heart with your foot. I, I may throw up.